Hello, Risen Hope. It's good to see you. Uh, most of you know me, but for those who don't, my name is JT, or in case you're watching online. Uh, I'm not the usual speaker here today, but it is my privilege to be sharing God's word with you. Before we get started, um, let us pray and ask God for his help. Father in heaven, your glory and wonder and power knows no bounds. And it, your boundless grace was personified in your son, Jesus, who came down from heaven to live with us, die for us, be resurrected and ascend so that we could be with you forever. I pray that today, as we look at your word, that that glorious reality would be in the, the forefront of our minds. And I pray that your love and joy and peace would be made clear through all that is shared today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So God willing, we are going through the pillars of Risen Hope for the fourth and final time. As a reminder, these four pillars of Risen Hope are the centrality of Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture, family of faith, and to love where you live. Some of you may remember that in 2018 we covered these pillars for the very first time, uh, going through Jesus' parables. And as a side note, uh, that might be among my very favorite sermon series of all time. Uh, and I listen to, go back and listen to it probably about once a year. And so if you're looking for something to do, I recommend going to the Risen Hope YouTube channel and finding the playlist called Pillars and listening to it. The way that these truths are unpacked and the way that I learned so much about those parables um, just has stuck with me all these years. The following year, we went through the pillars in the Old Testament prophets, and then the year after that, which was last year, we unpacked the pillars in the Psalms. As Jacob introduced last week, this iteration of the pillars of our church will be focused on Luke's history of the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts, as it's often called. And today, we're going to be focusing on that very first pillar, the centrality of Christ. We'll be doing so by starting with a story um, from Acts chapter 19. You can follow along if you'd like to, but feel free to just sit back and listen to it as it's a relatively lengthy story and passage. Um, so in the interest of making it a little bit easier to listen to for adults and children alike, uh, I'm going to be reading it from the New International Version, or NIV, translation, which is a faithful translation that is sometimes easier to comprehend than other translations. Uh, hopefully this allows everyone to listen and follow along as I tell the story. And we'll be starting at verse 23 of Acts 19. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, with the way here referring to Christianity, those who loved and followed Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when he realized, but when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. If you have brought these men here, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring us, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The events of this story um, are absurd, at least to me. And in the absurdity, there is both some comedy and a lot of tragedy. The behavior of the Ephesian people um, was patently, patently ridiculous, and what could possibly have caused them to behave in that manner? The answer is in where they found their identity. When their identity was being threatened or being valued, they joined into this commotion willingly. Looking at the passage and at the riot, we can identify four different identities of the Ephesian people that they have given themselves. The first identity is, is one of successful businessmen or identifying in their wealth, which we see in verses 24 through 27. The second identity we see, we see among the Ephesian people is as lovers of the goddess Artemis, which we see in verses 26 through 28. The third identity is that they were proud citizens of the city of Ephesus, which is an undertone throughout the verses, but made explicit in verse 35. And the fourth identity is one of needing to be accepted and validated by others, which is uh, made clear in verse 32, when many of the people didn't even know why they were there in the middle of the commotion. These identities are, are understandable. Uh, Ephesus was a very thriving and successful city. It was surrounded by fertile farmland. They were near the Silk Road, which enabled trade between Europe and Asia. They had a port to the sea, which enabled easy trade across the Mediterranean to Europe. They had a city that was built of marble and stone and had many great buildings in it, like a huge stadium, a two-story teaching hospital, and a sprawling library. And most of all, to the Ephesians, they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt, 
the wilderness, and of chastity. I don't know how those three things fit together, but that's what she was. <laughs> um, in Greek mythology, she was viewed as a maiden and as pure. The people of Ephesus took great pride in their city and in Artemis' role as their favored goddess. As I reflect on this, I'm reminded that we are prone to do similar things today. When someone asks who you are, for very understandable reasons, we answer with where we work, where we live, and what we like to do. Part of our identity, who we are, is defined by our vocation and our location. And we'll hear about this more from Nikki in three weeks. Loving where you live is a vital part of the Christian identity, but we cannot allow our location to define us. In this story, we see that the Ephesians let these things define them. It had become completely central to who they were. Without their jobs or without the city of Ephesus, they, could not um, they were nothing. They couldn't separate their identity from their location and all that brought to them, as well as their vocation. Their core identity as businessmen, as rich men, was threatened by the message of Jesus Christ. Their false god, Artemis, was threatened by the message of Jesus and their city's unique value was also threatened. When Paul and others were sharing the true gospel about Jesus, their response was to riot. Because their identity was so deeply entrenched in the things of this world, these people did not repent and believe when they heard that message. And so there are four places in the book of Acts where we see the message that was being taught to the Ephesian laid out in detail. And not just the Ephesians, but the surrounding area of Asia Minor. Um, this message that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior and our only hope. In other words, our core identity is in Jesus Christ. He is central to our lives. The first place that we see this laid out is in Acts chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. This is about a man named Apollos. Apollos was a well-spoken Jew who was from Egypt. And we see him referenced several times throughout Acts and in the New Testament letters. At this point, he had traveled, learned about Jesus, and had been preaching effectively. We see here in, in Acts 18, it says, When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So in this way, we see that the Ephesians were taught that their only everlasting hope is found in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah the Son of God, the only one who could reconcile them with the Father. No other person or concept would be able to save them. This was the core of what Apollos was teaching, that the most precious thing in the world was the Son of God, Jesus. And this is reiterated by Paul in, his, in 1 Timothy, which is a letter that would have been read by and likely directed to the believers in the same city, Ephesus. Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. There are many, many philosophies in the world on the afterlife. Some of them are, are wacky and crazy, and some of them are perhaps not that far off. But only one of them, is true and saving. And that's that Jesus Christ has saved us from eternal wrath, and it is through him that we can know God forever. So that's the first thing that we saw taught to the people of Ephesus and the surrounding area. The second is in Acts chapter 19, verses 2 through 5. 
And this is about Paul interacting with some disciples he'd met there. It says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is teaching the Ephesians that there is a real power, a true, deep, and everlasting power that comes from belief in Jesus Christ. There was a truth and goodness in what these men believed in, in the message of John the Baptist that was pointing to Jesus. However, it was lacking because it was not fully Christ-centered and comprehensive of all of Jesus' teachings. The Bible teaches us that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus, which is often referred to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here, we see that these disciples are now being baptized in the Holy Spirit, clothing them with a wondrous power, helping them be witnesses for Jesus Christ. These disciples were taught the full gospel of Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And there are three quick things I want to call out that are true about how the Holy Spirit helps us to know God and to show God, like what Jacob talked about last week. And it did the same thing for these disciples in Ephesus. First, we know that the Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ. We see this made clear in Acts chapter 5. Peter's telling the council in Jerusalem that we are witnesses to these things, with these things being that Jesus is our Savior. And Peter goes on to say, And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Second, the Holy Spirit gives us a real power. There are many examples of this, but one of them is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6. He's writing about the armor of the Lord, and he, he tells us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with all prayer and all supplication. And the third is that the Spirit assures us of our salvation in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, Paul writes, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the full gospel of Jesus Christ involves him sending us the Holy Spirit so that we can know him and show him on this earth. The third thing that is taught to the people of the region of Ephesus is in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And this is Paul again teaching, and it says here, And he entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And so when you read this, you must ask, what is the kingdom of God, and how could he talk about it for three months? Um, the, the question, what is the kingdom of God, is best answered by a deep dive into the Gospel of Matthew. But in short... Paul is describing what life looks like under the rule of our Heavenly Father in his kingdom. His kingdom is one where he is on the throne, and all the citizens of the kingdom are marked by a humble, childlike spirit and a sacrificial love for one another. We will get foretastes of this glorious kingdom now in our lives, but there's a time coming when we will experience the full riches of that kingdom and all of its glory. One thing that's true about this kingdom is that we are not only citizens of the kingdom. We are family. In his follow-up letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds them that 
in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before time began, which is incomprehensible to the human mind, God chose and he guaranteed that you and all those who treasure Jesus Christ would enter his kingdom as sons and as daughters. He's adopted you into a family that is everlasting and is better than any family you could ever imagine or experience on this earth. Through Jesus Christ, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and part of the family of faith. The fourth and final thing that we see taught to the people uh, of Ephesus can be seen in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 20. It says there, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There are several amazing ways that the supremacy and centrality of Christ are, are shown here. Um, and I'll touch on a few. We can see that the blessings and the power of the kingdom of God were desired by all, but not all were willing to pay the price. The sons of Sceva recognized the power of Jesus, but they were unwilling to submit to him. They wanted power and they wanted recognition. They did not want true transformation. Their life was centered on themselves and their selfish ambition, which is in direct contrast to the humble example of Christ. We also see that the result of the demon overpowering and beating the sons of Sceva was that the name of Jesus was extolled all across Ephesus, and there was fear at his great power. The awe at Christ's power resulted in many people giving up valuable possessions and activities, sacrificing costly and precious books that were antithetical to the gospel. There was no way to separate Jesus from what had happened there in the city. And out of a God-given humility, many people recognized the necessity for Christ to be the center of their own lives. I love how Paul beautifully models, models this and exhorts the church to do the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. The first three verses, he writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To these same Ephesians, these same people, he's writing to them some years later, and he says, first he's admitting to his humble situation that he's literally in prison for Jesus. It's hard to be much more humble than that. And then he urges them to live with all humility, 
gentleness, patience, and love, maintaining unity and peace through the Holy Spirit. Recapping, we see there were four things that the disciple, Paul and the other disciples of Christ taught in Ephesus and in the surrounding region. They are first, that Jesus is our Savior, our only hope in life and in death. Second, that the full gospel of Christ is one of power and assurance through the Holy Spirit. Third, we are not only citizens of heaven, but we are children of the living God, co-heirs in Jesus Christ. And fourth, we see that the power of the gospel comes through humble belief, not through prideful manipulation of Jesus' name. There's nothing more precious, nothing more meaningful, nothing more powerful, and nothing more real than Jesus. To put your hope into anything else um, is, is foolishness, because he is so much greater than anything that we could ever imagine or grasp onto in this life. Yet, that's what the citizens of Ephesus did. They were so caught up in being an Ephesian or in being successful that they rioted for reasons that some of them didn't even understand. It's, it's a tragedy. It's tragic. Um, it's also not completely foreign to us. What's your identity in? If I were to ask you to finish this sentence, I am a blank... What would you say? Man, woman, child, Seahawks fan, software developer, husband, daughter. All those things, they could be true. Those things could absolutely be true about you. But they don't define you in the same way that your core identity in Christ defines you. You are a child of God, a co-heir in Christ. That is where your identity lies, above all else. The Ephesians were offended because their core identity was being undermined by the gospel. Their wealth was at risk of being undermined, undermined, or their belief that it was Artemis who could make the world a better place. They got offended about things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, even if it really feels like it matters at the moment. And we do the same thing. Think about the things that matter to you or the groups that you consider yourself a part of. How do you react when that group is slandered? Do you get more offended about that than when the name of Jesus Christ is slandered. I've seen in my own life and in the life of my peers far more passion about a sports team, a celebrity, or a politician when they're slandered than when Jesus is slandered. In both the 2016 and 2020 elections, I saw believers and non-believers around me completely despondent due to the results. And I felt, embarrassingly, I felt and seen, felt and seen the same thing about a sporting event. It's just... It shows a complete disconnect from what actually should be the center of my identity and who I am. Given our identity in Christ and our everlasting hope, these are absolutely not reasons to be despondent or have that level of anger. Disappointment can absolutely be appropriate. But when your passion for these things overtakes your passion for Christ and the things of Christ, peace, hope, and love, it's an indicator that our identity is not truly centered in Jesus. So remember, please remember who you are. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were literally created in, through, and for Jesus. There is no more glorious or precious purpose in the universe than to live for Christ.
We are Christians first, and everything else is second. We don't try to fit Jesus into our jobs or our passions. Jesus is our passion, and he dictates how we engage with all things in our life. However, it is not only your individual life that must be centered in Christ. It's an absolute necessity for the local church to be Christ-centered and to be Christ-exalting. This necessity is made clear, it's made clear throughout the Bible, but one place I want to call out was Acts chapter 18. You may remember that we mentioned Apollos earlier. He was the Egyptian man who was explaining that Jesus was the Messiah and persuading them in the synagogues. However, um, at that time when, he, when we read that earlier, that was, he only recently had begun to fully understand God's plan through Jesus. If you look at the verses preceding those, it says, now a, man named, uh, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he, though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was a great preacher and a great teacher, but he also had brothers and sisters who loved him and wanted to ensure that he was preaching the full and complete gospel. Amongst the church, the body of believers in Ephesus, it was essential that Christ was preached. The baptism of God, John is a good thing, very good thing. But without the full gospel, it's not sufficient. And the same holds true today. Churches can tell you about love, serving others, or teach you some moral lessons. But if they aren't pointing you and the community to Christ, it's not enough. Morality never saved anyone. Just like we talked about individual identity, the same is true for churches. We're nearing a, a period of transition. Um, for me, and, and perhaps for you all, uh, it, it's heartbreaking to see this chapter come to an end. And in January, we're all going to be working out exactly what it is that God has in plan for us when it comes to a local church body. I'm not here today to, to dictate to you exactly what that church is. That's not my place. But I can tell you exactly what kind of church it needs to be. It needs to be a church that is all about Jesus. When someone attended Risen Hope by God's grace, went to one of our Bible studies or visited our website, there was no doubt left in their mind. These people are all about Jesus. The identity of this church is completely centered in Jesus Christ. And it needs to be the same wherever you end up. If people describe the church as loving, that's a good thing. If they describe it as big or small, that's okay. But do they describe it as Jesus-loving or Christ-centered? That's essential. So what does it look like for a church to be Christ-centered? That's what this pillar series is all about. These five sermons, we have four pillars at Risen Hope, and they're simply summations of what is made clear all throughout Scripture. They aren't concepts that Jeremy made up. They are God-given, Christ-exalting necessities for the local church. The centrality of Christ is the first pillar, and the other three are intimately related to it. They must exist if a church is focused on Christ. Christ. 
So as you look for a Christ-centered church, please keep these five things in mind. And these, you know, it should be pretty straightforward. They, they correspond to these five sermons. The first is that the church should help its members and its community both know God and show God, as Jacob shared about last week. The second is that the church should be proclaiming and worshiping the full gospel of Christ regularly. The third is that the church should be completely dependent on the Word of God, the Bible, for understanding God and the world. Michael will be talking more about this next week, but the church's charter, culture, and sermons should not be centered around other books or ways to improve your life. It should be all about what does the Bible say. Fourth, the church should deeply, deeply value Christians, both within and outside the local church. We are children of the living God, co-heirs in Christ. We have a bond that is closer than anything in the world. And that needs to be deeply valued by the church. And Timothy is going to be telling us more about that in two weeks. And fifth, the church should realize that God in his infinite wisdom has placed them precisely where they are. And they should deeply love those around them. Nikki will be telling us more about this in three weeks. Um, about the ways that a church and its members are to meet the spiritual and the physical needs of their neighbors. So don't just join a church because it feels comfortable and easy. Join a church where you, your family, and your community can go and grow in Christ with one another. The church would not exist if it were not for Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the head of the church. Without Jesus, the church dies. Not only that, without Christ being central, the church dies. Through him, the church builds itself up in love, and it works properly. This very same Ephesian church, despite all the great teaching of Paul, Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Gaius, Aristarchus, and others, struggled with the same thing years later. In the book of Revelation, we see John writing, specifically he's quoting God, and he writes the Ephesian church in chapter 2 of Revelation. It's written, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have, tested them, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Ephesian church had forgotten their first love, Jesus. They were still doing some good, but they were not exalting Christ in the way they did when the church was founded and God was rebuking them for this, pushing them toward repentance. So treasure Christ, whether it's you, your family, or your church, your core identity, who you really are, should be based solely on him. And I want to say that it's not okay for your identity to be based on something that is 
Christ-informed, because that's not Jesus. There are many biblical or Christianity-adjacent topics that we could get caught up in. And here are three examples I want to pull out that I've seen in culture, my own life, or perhaps the life of others. Maybe you've seen this as well. I want to call out that a particular political party is not redeemed or Christ-exalting. If you're on the streets shouting things like trans rights or human rights or make America great again, you might as well be shouting great as Artemis of the Ephesians. It's idolatry. Second, a particular philosophy on schooling is not inherently Christ-centered. If you feel attacked when somebody disparages public schools, your private school, or your homeschool philosophy, or if you take pride in your decision, you're possibly being idolatrous and not placing, and placing your identity in your schooling philosophy. And third, creating tribes around what I call tertiary theological considerations, like the age of the earth or the exact sequencing of the end time, creating these groups and these dividing lines is not Christ-exalting. Your perspective or hardcore evangelizing or schisms that are created based on your belief of the exact sequencing of events in Genesis or in Revelation is not what points people to Christ. God has hidden a great many things from us. And while there are glorious things revealed in Genesis and Revelation, the exact sequencing of events are not completely clear to our human minds. But what is not hidden from us at all is Jesus Christ and his love for us and how he wants us to live our lives. That is abundantly clear to us. It's a very reasonable thing to have a perspective and a passion on the things I just mentioned. In fact, I think you should. You should have a Christ-informed, Bible-informed passion and interest in some of the things I mentioned. But don't let that passion compare in any way to the passion for Christ. It should pale in comparison. The passion for Jesus should overtake all of that seven days a week, 365 days a year. To be a Christian is to cherish and to treasure Christ, and thus cherish and treasure his bride, his lost sheep, and his teachings. So remember what the Ephesians were taught in Acts. They were taught first that Jesus is our Savior, our only hope in life and in death. They were taught that the full gospel of Christ is one of power and assurance through the Holy Spirit. They were taught that we are not only citizens of heaven, but that we are children of the living God, co-heirs in Jesus Christ. And they were taught that the power of the gospel comes through humble belief, not prideful manipulation of Jesus' name. We're going to close by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It's through Christ alone that we have any hope in life or death. And as we read these verses, ponder on that. That it is Jesus alone that really matters. Starting with verse 4 in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Amen. even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Let us pray. Lord, there is nothing I can say that compares or can give glory or give proper credit to you, your son Jesus, and your spirit. I pray, God, that every day that you could strengthen us and give us wisdom and give us a heart for you, every day our hearts would break for the state of the world and yearn for your love and your joy and your peace that we have access to because of your obedient and perfect Son, Jesus. I pray that we would never forget how precious his name is, that we would not take his sacrifice for granted, that we would realize that this is an amazing and deep and costly grace, and that we would just dig deeper into knowing you and loving you through fellowship with your saints, through reading your word, and through prayer with you. I pray, God, that you would help us truly know what it means to treasure Christ even more each and every day of our lives. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.